Hi guys, Rob here, the podcast editor for Everymind. Welcome to an interview with Gethin J. Nadin, writer, podcaster, speaker, and author of A Word of Good, lessons from around the world in improving the employee experience. I think you're really going to like this one. And if you do, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes so that we can keep bringing you great podcasts like these. One final note for you audio listeners, due to the pandemic, we are recording this remotely, so you will hear the occasional noise in the background, so please bear with us, and hopefully soon it will all be back to normal. Enjoy the show. So, Geffen, welcome to the Every Mind at Work podcast. Hopefully you're well today. It looks like an amazing background behind you. <laughs> I, uh, I get told quite a lot it looks like I'm in a kind of state government office or something like that. In the US. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've literally come into my little boy's bedroom and he's got this bright orange wall behind me so it's not the most glamorous um location and we like to record these podcasts in person so um it's always more difficult than it this way but really really appreciate you taking the time out today i'm actually really excited um to hear more because obviously your your experience your expertise in this is something that i'm excited to to ask you questions about um but before we start if you can just let us know a little bit more about your your current role and and what you do in your day-to-day Okay, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, like we were speaking before, um, I, I think we've probably kind of been skirting around each other in the industry for quite a long time. And uh, so great to, great to kind of finally meet you. Um, yeah, so um, I've kind of currently, I'm Director of Employee Wellbeing at Benefex. So we're kind of employee experience technology business. Um, I, as well as the wellbeing, I pretty much lead all of our thought leadership and kind of expertise. So get involved in sales, product, marketing, spend a lot of time with our customers as well. Um, very kind of research orientated so I kind of like to prove things work when we put them in front of our customers um, and what's kind of led me to that point really is you know I've been at Benefex as part of the senior leadership team for about nine years um, experiencing a few different startups setting up employee benefit and engagement departments at different businesses and I guess I started to really see that despite really large companies investing in things like employee experience and employee engagement, employee well-being, um, people are still making some pretty fundamental mistakes and not really achieving great things with kind of, they're spending a lot of money and not really moving forwards that much. Um, and so I kind of started to research and read more and that led me to kind of speak and write more and I'm a guest writer for a number of different HR publications, do a lot of things like podcasts, have my own podcast and put all that stuff into a book and the book, uh, a world of good lessons from around the world and improving the employee experience went straight onto the HR bestseller list uh, in the UK um, and c- kind of amazingly, amazingly continues to sell um, you know, at least a few a week and uh, and that really kind of galvanized my thoughts of well-being being a really important part of that employee experience uh, and I guess what we've seen now over the last five months or so is this great kind of well-being acceleration where employers are uh, suddenly listening to people like you or I possibly yeah. a bit more than they did before. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, people like you and I can kind of keep that momentum up and make sure that employees continue to invest in the well-being of their staff. Amazing. And in terms of your own personal journey in, into this line of work, um, you know, was there a personal reason or did you fall into it? You know, what was your journey as a HR professional? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, for a long time growing up, wanted to be an animator. That's kind of what... I was going to do. Um, I did my work experience with animation companies. I kind of met Nick Park and all the Aardman guys back when they were barely nice. famous. And um, 
and that kind of didn't really work out. And so I ended up doing a psychology degree. Um, I was always really interested in people um, and became a member of the British Psychological Society and kind of that was something I was really interested in. Uh, didn't really get going with that for a while. Did a couple of years working in television as a researcher and production assistant. Um, and then that, as that work kind of dried up because it's obviously all contract-based, uh, I just needed to get a job. So I got a job in a pensions department for legal and general. Um, and about 12 months in, had to make a decision whether I really wanted to continue with trying to find TV work or just settle into this new role that I'd found. Um, and at the time, the Welsh Development Agency was offering about £15,000 worth of management training. I, want, I applied, wanted to take it. My boss said I couldn't. She didn't think I was ready, so kind of stopped me from doing it. I went over her head and did it anyway and uh, ended up getting the training, came back, took my boss's job, um, uh, which is kind of serendipitous. And uh, and that was really my first experience was, you know, at, at the most I was managing kind of 20 to 25 people and really started to understand, you know, that, that how much how much work affected people's lives really in, in good in good and bad ways. What motivated people? I worked a lot with the HR team, and I ended up with about my first twelve months as a young manager when I was kind of about twenty three. My uh, trainer at the time told me I had about ten years worth of uh, experience in my first year. We had kind of a lot of disciplinaries, you know, some really kind of amazing stories that people think I made up about what happened uh, managing people. Um, and that's that led me to spend a lot of time with the union, with the HR team. And that was really my kind of first inkling into, you know, work has a big effect on people. And actually, mm. people deserve to work in jobs that they love and with employers that take care of them. Um, and I've had my, as, as I've kind of gone through and developed my career, I've had my own experiences of being badly treated by employers and having really good bosses. And it really has just driven me to think that actually I want everyone to realize that you know, you don't have to put up with a, a job that makes you feel shit about yourself. You don't have to put up with a job where your boss is horrible to you. Uh, and just want really to give everyone the opportunity to understand that there there are better employers out there. And obviously, doing whatever I can to make uh, to make the best employers kind of shine, so people know who they are. Amazing. So it's almost like you're combining your own personal experiences and what you've been through with obviously, you know, what you've studied and what you've learned along the way as well. And I think in employee, employee experience, like even, even that word scares me because it's, it's so broad, right? And, and, you know, mental health is individual. Every employee is individual. So what helps one might not help the other. And I know you've wrote a book on this and you've done a lot of work yourself on it, but if there were any kind of key takeaways or key points that, that you could share and you could offer to companies to help them improve employee experience within their business, um, what would those key takeaways be? And so I think we need to get better at personalizing that experience to, for people. Um, as you've mentioned, you know, we're all diverse. We all have needs that differ from one person to the next. Um, but that's really fluid, right? So what I need today and what I need tomorrow might be two different things. And so I think employers really need to think about personalizing that experience to an individual. Um, you know, as consumers, we're used to that now, right? Netflix, Amazon, LinkedIn, you know, all these kind of thing, the tools we use personalize an experience to us and based on what we need. And I think employers need to take a better view of how, how can they do that for people. Um, and I think what's really interesting is for a long time, I think we started to realize that we thought in order to be fair, we had to treat everybody the same way. And I just don't think that works because, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not married. 
the next person might have five kids so they might have greater needs than me and they might need to to be met in a different way that my needs are and so i think you know why would my employer offer me the same benefits offer me the same kind of hr policy or perks etc when i'm just not the same as that person so i think being able to deliver that personalized employee experience in whatever way they can is probably one of the key things and understanding that you know you don't have to be a google and invest millions to make a difference lots of companies can do some very small things um you look at some of the, the smallest things that really affect people's mental health at work when it comes to kind of hr policy things like flexible working just giving people the time to work around their lives and kind of really integrate their work and home lives um uh, you know, that kind of stuff isn't going to cost you anything. You know, people aren't working any vest. They're just choosing a time that works right for them. And in terms of that personalization sort of element, is, is there anything that you've done that's helped with that? Because, you know, I'm sure it's difficult for employers to understand employees without them being honest or without there being some sort of practical surveys or whatever it is that finds out a little bit more about employees. Is there anything that you've done to really help with that personalization stage? Yeah. So the survey stuff is interesting. We refer to this at Benefex as kind of, uh, there's kind of two measures of well-being: a kind of subjective and objective. So the objective stuff is, um, you know, the typical measures people have as to how well-being is working. And that is, you know, are people taking less sick days? Is our turnover higher or lower? Is our presenteeism or presenteeism or productivity, is that kind of up or down? Um, but the subjective measures are basically asking people. Um, and typically what we tend to see is, you know, the whole kind of employee survey industry has been dominated by the idea that, you know, they're anonymous and you don't, you know, they don't know the answers and that kind of stuff. And it's like, actually, we, we do want to know who's saying those answers. We do want to know who's given us the criticism or who's given us the praise because we can do something with that. You know, if you don't know who's struggling, it becomes really difficult. Um, but I think that ends up being a cultural thing. You know, it's kind of if people aren't safe to speak up, if people are afraid that you're going to find out they gave you the answer saying, actually, the way you treat me makes my mental health a bit poorer. Um, that's a cultural issue. That's nothing to do with the survey itself. So I think you know, the best employers have created that environment where they basically say, you know, it's absolutely fine and safe for you to speak up and you can be anonymous if you want to. But if you don't want to, we're actually going to take what you say seriously and do something about it. Um, and I think what we've seen during the coronavirus lockdown is, you know, people have seen uh, two thirds of organizations have seen employee engagement improve during lockdown because all of a sudden every employer acted like they cared for everyone. They said, yeah. yeah you've got this stuff going on in your life. We sympathize and we empathize with you and we want to give you more time and breathing space and we want you to be honest with us and we want to help you in whatever way we can. And your CEO is going to get on a call with you every week or send an email to all the staff saying, look, you know, we care about you. We know it's difficult. And I look at the, la the last five months and think, what if that was life? What if that if it was normal life yeah. and people had that relationship with their employer where they could just say, look, I'm struggling. These are the reasons why. And knowing that they'd step forward and help them. So I think, you know, coronavirus was a catalyst, but actually I think there's a lot of lessons for us to, to learn about how we speak to employees and how we take their opinions and views seriously. Yeah, there, there's lots of questions I've got off the back of that. But I think, you know, the first one, if we are talking about this, the pandemic and, and how that's impacted remote working, employee experience, as you say, employee engagement, you know, for, for us and for me, you know, same as you have been banging that drum for a little while now. And, and all of a sudden, you know, basically over the last couple of months, we've seen a massive shift. Um, 
do you have fears that it's all going to go back to what it was before? Or do you believe that a lot of organizations have learned from this period and they'll start to integrate a lot of what they're already doing during this stage? Uh, I, th- I think there's a bit of both. So, you know, the latest research from Gallup from uh, mid-July 2020 kind of shows that um, there's been about 20% drop in people thinking their employer cares about them since lockdown began. So you've effectively seen this big spike where we think, you know, what oh, my employer really cares about me. And as we've kind of got used to lockdown, some of that stuff has tailed off. Mm. And that's because we've, you know, naturally most companies have kind of said, look, we're not going to do a weekly update anymore. We'll do that two weekly and all this kind of stuff. We just settled into this new life. Um, so I think for lots of employers, there will be this element of just going back to the way things were um, because uh, as humans, we're quite comfortable with that, right? We understand that world because we've lived in it for, for decades. Um, but I do think there has been a big shift Um and I think, you know, if you look at all the research around the, the mental health impact that coronavirus is going to have long term, you know, uh, economy wise, we're going to live with the effects of this uh, coronavirus for, you know, the next four to five years, at least, you know, house prices, etc, aren't expected to bounce back for about four or five years. Um, you know, we are entering a recession. So for a short period of time, we'll have a dip, but the after effects of the job losses we've seen will continue. We know that lots of people have taken kind of 20% pay cuts because of furlough or they've been asked to take pay cuts because their company's been struggling. And so the knock-on effects of that financial stress will continue in people's lives for a long time. So, um, And we can look back at the kind of SARS epidemic in 2008, 2009 and see the research from that time that showed lockdown has pretty severe effects on some people's mental health. Mm. Uh, people display symptoms of post-traumatic stress and we will see that again. So I think... The runoff effects means people will have to continue to take the well-being of their staff seriously for a lot longer because we'll be dealing with the after effects. Um, but I do generally feel like, you know, a pretty strong view that, you know, well-being at work isn't a trend. We've raised the bar and we've created a new expectation. Uh, and when you look specifically at the kind of under 30s and what they want from work, they want to work with a caring employer and actually you know, I work for an employer that's really taken care of my mental health and well-being during lockdown. And lots of our colleagues have told us that they've gone and had chats with friends or video chats with friends. And they've been able to hear from those people that, uh, you know, their employers haven't been very nice to them and haven't been patient with them. And so I think everyone now has this expectation that oh, maybe there's going to be somebody who's actually going to look after me, you know, I don't have to put up with this. And you know, I think there's some stats out today that show 20% of people said as soon as lockdown finishes and coronavirus disappears, they're going to look for another job. So that's kind of a, a fifth of the staff are waiting for the economy to recover just so they can yeah. get out and feel like their employer looked after them. Yeah, it's, 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 it's again, there's, there's so much there. And I think, again, one of our, or one of my biggest fears is, of course, cash flow, you know, businesses have been hit pretty hard at this time. And of course, we're still, a lot of businesses are still in that mindset, you know, that we need to, focus on that work hard prioritize our budgets and areas to increase that cash flow and really that budget isn't being put into to well-being in, into you know mental health and it's it's something that i've spoken about before where mental health is high priority right now employee engagement employee experience is high priority right now but budgets obviously aren't aren't reflecting that um and, and like you said i think you said you saw my post the other day but it'd be interesting to hear about your thoughts on if an organization doesn't have the budget available for mental health, you know, what would you advise them to do? Um, I think first and foremost, employers and kind of the work I'm trying to do is we've got to understand that well-being is an investment. It's not a cost. Mm. You know, there's not a kind of, 
there is a kind of profit and loss associated with it, but it should be seen as a pretty standard thing you invest in. Um, we now have very vast and compelling evidence that the poor mental health of your staff has a significant effect on your business. That evidence is so compelling enough that we can state that as fact, that if your employees are suffering, your business is suffering. If you aren't taking care of your employees, you will not have a successful business. We can see there's reports out there that show those organizations that use the terms well-being and mental health in their group accounts show something like four times the profits of those companies that don't mention it. So the people that are actively saying to their shareholders, look, this is an important part of what it is to be part of our company, um, are kind of showing us that that's, that stuff's really important. Um, so I think first and foremost, companies just really need to think about this as an investment. And, you know, the latest Deloitte report shows, you know, for every one pound you invest in mental health, you get five pound back. So that's a pretty good return on investment by anyone's standard. So um, I think, you know, we need to do more to convince our boards and our finance teams that this is an investment we should be making just as standard. Um, but, you know, some of the things you put in your LinkedIn post, the light was just around, you know, we just need to create cultures of getting people to speak up and talk about this stuff. Um, we've seen over the last couple of years, number of high profile celebrities and business leaders talking about their own mental health encourages others to do it. We've seen in our own organization that getting senior people in our business at Benefex to talk about their mental health encourages other people to not just tell us about their mental health, but to come and apply for jobs with us. So we have some really good people working with us that suffer from depression and anxiety. Um, and so I think that creating that culture of kind of well-being, creating that culture of mental health is a pretty straightforward thing to do that people don't have to invest in. And I think if you get people talking to you and opening up about their own challenges, you then have something tangible to work with. You know what problems you can solve. You know what way you as an employer might be um, harming your employees because I think that's missed by a lot of people. Um, I was talking to the psychologist and ex-NBA basketball player, John Amici, a couple of weeks ago about the growing trend of employers to just buy things like mindfulness apps or mental health tools or financial well-being tools um, without really thinking about what role do I have to play in that. Um, so you've got employers that are really stressing people out, really toxic work environments, managers that aren't trained in kind of being sympathetic or empathetic, who are putting huge amounts of pressure on people, causing mental health issues or exacerbating them, and then trying to undo that damage by buying a product and putting it over the top when actually the message would probably be there's some HR policy or training issues you should deal with first. And again, that's stuff you can change as a business without any investment. Yeah, I like that. And again, it's like you say, encouraging employees to to engage. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but you know, I would say about a year or two ago, I remember an organization said to me, you know, if you're if you're coming in and talking about your story and talking about mental health, are you gonna open up a can of worms? Right? Are you going to um cause this issue in our in our in our organization that, that wasn't there beforehand? And um you know, I had to kind of tell them, look, if I'm not opening up any can of worms, if it's there, it's there. I'm just bringing light to it. But at the same time, I think what's what's really important was in seeing the impact that that has and, and trying to encourage other employees to share their stories and, and what they're going through afterwards. And there was a talk that I did at Mercer. And after that, I facilitated a panel with four employees of Mercer and they all stood up and shared their story. Now, I shared my story and I could see a bit of an impact. Those four people sharing their stories, like the impact on that room was huge because they're employees that they, they have lunch with, that they sit next to. Um, 
and like you said, that's, that's free, right? It's just encouraging your employees to talk about it and feeling safe. And I think something that you said as well, it really stood out to me is, is it's sometimes like, you know, our product is anonymized. And the reason why we make our product anonymized is because we want employees to have the peace of mind that they can use it without feeling judged. But you made a really, really interesting point that if they didn't feel like their employers were judging them, then it doesn't have to be anonymized. Right. So like it, it, I've always find stigma very difficult to talk about because as you say, it's not those quick wins that some companies are looking for. But again, in terms of your experience, how do you sell culture change to an organization? Is, is there a way that you found to be effective? It's really difficult, right? It's, um, first of all, you need the right people, right? So we've got customers who've really started to do this um, and uh, a, co- a company called Countryside who wouldn't, uh, wouldn't mind me mentioning their name, but Sean Myers has really pushed for that culture change. And so she effectively created a new role for herself as a culture transformation director. Nice. You know, this is a house builder that traditionally has got a really old school way of thinking about how they treat employees, the board, etc., are completely on board with, you know, let's change the industry and let's change our business. But, you know, from a mental health perspective, you know, construction is one of the worst, you know, they've got yeah. higher rates of kind of suicide amongst people who work in construction. And so they've really had to kind of, take it to heart and just realize we've got to make some big changes in this business. And I think when you've got people like Sean on board who really drive that and are really passionate about it, it becomes a lot easier because those people can do a pretty good job of convincing everyone else. Um, But you do have lots of companies where, you know, I'm sure you've seen this as well, where this is still seen as fluffy stuff. You know, we Mm. let's not pretend we, there's still not a stigma attached to this stuff. You know, as much as I talk about all of this kind of stuff, you know, I've never had a, a serious mental health issue, have had some anxiety related to work that has led to me to go and you know, speak to a counsellor. But even sometimes when I tell people that story, I still feel a little kind of wince in me that I'm going to be judged because, you know, is that a sign of weakness for a man especially to be talking about going to do this stuff? Um, so I think it becomes really, really difficult to do that culture change. And I think part of the difficulty is it's a long journey. It's like turning a juggernaut round on a kind of two-lane carriageway. It's like that bit in Austin Powers where you just kind of slowly yeah. turn the car around bit by bit. Um, but I think if you've got the right people on board and the right passion, then that really makes a, really, really makes a big difference. And uh, it's one of the kind of few things I like about the idea of a mental, first, mental health first aider is you know, technically, there's not a lot of evidence to prove these things work. So I'm not a big fan of it as a as a as a benefit or kind of product or an approach. However, where you do see them having an impact is you get people talking about it for more, you get some advocates in the business. And I think the more people you convince, the more voices you've got to, to build the argument and build support. And that's when the culture starts to change, just like it does in society. The more people you kind of educate, the more people you get on board, change happens. Yeah. And I hope you agree with this, but you know, the same with me and mental health first aid or, or any products, you know, unless you tackle stigma first, like none of them are going to be accessed, right. An employee assistance program, for example. Um, and there was a good case where an organization, it was a financial company, they did a little bit about mental health. And then I went in did a series of workshops, talks and started to really tackle mental health as within the organization. Now, what they then started to see was before that they, they tried to do mental health first aid. And I think they had one person come forward and say they wanted to be a mental health first aider. Um, after those talks and series and awareness weeks and, and all of that, that mounted up, 
they then said, hey, we want to train up some mental health first aiders who would be interested. And I think that number was like, you know, 30, 40 in comparison to, to one or two. So as you say, it's sometimes it's hard to sell that eradicating of stigma, but it's the first step that everyone has to take, right? To, to change, um, you know, well-being within, within the workplace itself. And, and on that as well, I know you, you wrote a little bit about this vulnerability, you know, how important does vulnerability play in all of this? And especially in the workplace, I, I believe that still, especially senior leaders are fearful of vulnerability because it's, you know, them putting themselves at a different level in their eyes, you know, so, so should we embrace vulnerability or should we avoid it? Yeah. So I think vulnerability is, is really important. I think if you look at those organizations where, mental health is kind of really embraced and where um you know those senior leaders in those businesses are not afraid to stand up and talk about their own struggles um and you've seen some ceos of some really big organizations you know famously i think that the lloyd ceo talked about how he would go home and cry during the financial crisis because of the burden that he felt to bring the company through the last financial crisis and you know we're going to have that again right we're going to go through this again and you know, leaders are going to be really vulnerable um, about the fact that they're going to have to let people go. And I, I would much rather see somebody in an organization act like a human than just this kind of stoic British, let's get people through the business type thing. Let's get through this difficult time. Um, and I think one of the big changes I've seen as well, which I don't ever really remember seeing before Barack Obama was the idea that a president can hug somebody and cry with them and sympathize with them and say, you know, what you've gone through is terrible. I feel really sorry for you. And now we look at people like Justin Trudeau and Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. You know, these are presidents and prime ministers that are quite happy to just kind of show their vulnerable side and show us that they're humans. Um, and I think as I've got older, it's become a trait I've really valued in other people. Um, and, and, you know, some of the listeners might have seen this as well in programs like first dates where, you know, you get to kind of, you're watching two people on a first date, you know, you kind of watch this man or woman walk up to the table and you kind of, sometimes your first impression is, oh, this, this person's a bit of an idiot and they sit down and then they start talking about the challenges they've had in life. And all of a sudden you're a little bit like, oh, I feel really, I kind of really connect with that person because I'm starting to see them as a human being. And I think as soon as you understand other people as humans, we can just work together a lot better. I think you can just, uh, I just gravitate towards people who show me their vulnerable side because I just, I want to see people as humans. I don't want to see the false version. I want to see what scares you and what makes you upset and what challenges you've been through. Um, and so I certainly hope to be a senior leader that does that. And I think you do that and you allow everyone else and you give everyone else permission to do that too. And I think as colleagues and as friends and as kind of just humans and neighbors, the more we see that vulnerable side of people, the more we're able to be better friends and better colleagues and better neighbours because we've, we kind of understand what, what every, every person has made. And, and generally speaking, in my experience, those people who've been through some really tough times are actually the best people to be around because they understand what it's like to live through difficulty so they can really help others live through difficulty. So to your point about, you know, if you really want to find out who the right people are to help, you know, some of the people that have already been through this will be the people that will stand, put their hand up and say, I want to be a mental health first aider because they want to make sure people don't go through the same as what they've gone through. And as I said before, that's what motivates me. So, you know, I know what it's like to have a bad boss and I know what it's like to have a great boss and I know the difference it makes to your life. So I want everyone to realize that actually, if you're not working for an employer that takes care of you, find somewhere else to work because there is there are people out there that will take care of you. Yeah, I love that. And this 
there's so much there but like you said sometimes when i stand up and i'm ready to do a talk and i've done talks in construction companies and you can kind of see them all like who's this guy and you know we know we're doing a talk on mental health and you know i always use that first 10 minutes to be as open raw and honest as possible and and you can see the the dynamic of the room change dramatically and then afterwards you know the guys that even i'm and this is my own thought but we're all naturally wired to do this i'm stereotyping them like oh this guy is going to really like hate this he's not going to be interested in this they're then coming to me at the end and saying you know this is my story and this is my story and talking about that and and i think as you say vulnerability is you as a leader not exhausting yourself because you're wearing this mask and you're putting on this front. It's, it's you being real. It's you being human and, and you being able to interact with your team in that way. And I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan, right? You know, and um, luckily we've been, we've had a good season. I, I was yeah. I, the last, my mum always says I'm the curse, right? Cause I was born and we've never won the Premier League since then. I was born in 1990. Um, but I like, Klopp, right? Jurgen Klopp, you know, he's someone who will hug them. He's someone who will like embrace them. His compassion, his compassion shines through. He's always talking about the team and not him. But at the same time, you know, with Klopp that he has that authority because of that, that vulnerability and that compassion that he, he shares. And, and at the same time, he's not, he's not afraid of, of owning his role and making decisions and, and doing that as well. So I, I'm, I'm glad you're on the same page and agree that vulnerability is something that we should embrace in the workplace and, and not avoid as well. I've, um, I've seen it work in my own life as well. So, you know, a bit of anxiety I had about work, not serious mental health condition at all, didn't require any kind of intervention, but it led me to maybe think about, you know, because of the bad way I'd been treated at work, maybe I hadn't dealt with some stuff and should I speak to a counsellor? literally walked into this first counseling session laid back you know, really casually on the chair as if to kind of say like i'm wasting your time i'm wasting my time but i thought i should do this and the counselor had me crying within about 10 minutes and he's like look if you're still crying about something that happened 10 years ago we need to deal with it um and so you know kind of about you know probably about 12 counseling sessions later we got to the point where he was like look i think you're counseling yourself now so i think we're, we're probably done and it just felt like a massive weight off my shoulders and when I talk about that kind of low-level anxiety at talks, etc., you know, there are people who go out there and talk about kind of serious depression, suicide, and mental health challenges, and that's just really important. But there are lots of people like me as well that will just have a really difficult six months. They'll kind of hold their breath and get over it and never revisit it again, but it's probably holding them back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a customer conference last year I spoke at, and it, I wasn't I wasn't intending to talk about that counselling, but I was talking about kind of caring cultures and why this customer of ours had gone through such a big culture change program and why they wanted the employees on board. They wanted me to kind of just galvanise why that was important to do. And I ended up just off the cuff talking about going to see a counsellor and the impact that had on me. And um, and when I left, I had a queue of employees wanting to speak to me and about four of those people just wanted to talk about counselling, which was probably 30 seconds of what I spoke about. And that was... I've been thinking about it. How did you go through it? Like, who did you speak to? Uh, my daughter's been struggling. Do you think counselling would be good for her? You know, what do you recommend as the next steps? And I was amazed. And so I ended up putting something on Twitter and just opened up about it and said, look, I've just finished this course of counselling. It wasn't a big, serious event, but it's really helped me. Um, and I just, I reconnected with a guy that I knew about almost 20 years ago. I hadn't spoken for a long time. Uh, we had a Zoom call last week where he told me because I shared that thing on Twitter he decided to go and see a counsellor and how much he's changed his life and uh, what best causes on. So we can't underestimate the impact sharing those little stories that people can actually have to, to get them to make the right decisions. And you must hear this a lot. People must come and see you and, and have the same reaction. 
No, it's like you say though, like, you know, you could do a whole presentation on all of these, you know, this stuff that you've put together and all of these amazing strategies and all they do is listen to that two minute piece of vulnerability about you being open and they can relate to that and they want to talk about that. So hopefully we're getting there. And, and like you say, I think with outside of the workplace, the more celebrities that you said, you know, even footballers or, you know, whoever it is, boxers, you know, when, when, or whoever it is, you know, women in power, them coming out and talking about mental health and what they've been through, it always kind of helps other people feel like they can too. Um, but the question that I've got as well, and then we're going to move on to like a, a fire round, a quick couple of questions okay. is um, as a HR professional or as someone listening to this or watching this, who's interested in making some change amongst their organization with mental health. And I'm sure there's lots, because as you said, if you've been impacted by it, you really want to drive that change forward, but they're kind of facing challenges. Like no one's really buying into it or they're getting sort of, Oh, we won't, we won't address this yet. We'll address it next year. What advice would you, would you give to them? Um, so I think you know, there, there has never been, for as long as I've been doing this, there has never been a more important time to commit to, to employee wellbeing. Um, we, we have never been through it. Most people alive today haven't been through a pandemic like we have, um, as I mentioned before, the runoff effects of this are going to be with us for some time. Um, those organizations that have kind of got through lockdown and will get through if there's a second wave, et cetera, um, will need their employees fully on board and working hard and committed because we've got to make up for lost time and kind of recuperate some of the revenue that's disappeared and, you know, repair our businesses. And you can only do that when your employees are engaged and safe and well. So it's an investment in making sure your business will survive um, by investing in employee well-being. Um, I think it's also HR needs to realize that, you know, this is this is sat with them. Um, you know, 55% of well-being budgets are controlled by the HR team. And that HR team might not believe in well-being, might not have any experience in well-being. So, you know, I, my advice to them is kind of get on, get on board with it if you're not and convince yourself yeah. it's, it's worth taking seriously. Um, and, you know, use that budget kind of wisely and, and push for a better budget. And, you know, with the work that we do at Benefex, we're seeing increasingly reward and benefits people being given the responsibility over well-being because as a business tries to work out where does this budget sit or where does this responsibility for well-being sit they're turning to the place where they already have gym membership or private medical or health screening and kind of saying well this is health and benefits so let's put it here um and so those reward and benefits people again are, are being given the responsibility sometimes without any consultation at all um and i would say kind of embrace it and run with it because i think you can start to show for maybe the first time in a long time the real impact HR can have on an organization. And we always talk about HR having a seat at the table and it feels like if really people committed to well-being at the moment and really invested in well-being, you could start to show how improvement in mental health will start to help you achieve wide business goals and start to see HR taken as seriously as teams like sales and marketing because you can start to see that actually an investment in that area will kind of significantly take the, the the business forward and i would love to get to the point where you know a new startup doesn't wait till they hit 100 lives before they employ hr people and a hr person ends up being one of the first hires you make along with a cfo and a cto because i think people really need to think seriously about hr is going to be around for a long time whatever name you want to call it whatever department it becomes it's going to be a significant part of any business strategy if it's not already um so yeah, people have got to take it seriously and invest in it. I love that. I've never thought of it that way of embedding it early, right? And just having 
that there because typically as an SME, you know, you, you might outsource your HR, you know, it, it's embedding it into the organization early and setting that kind of morale and that culture as early on as you possibly can. So, um, I could talk about this forever. Right? I'm, yeah. I'm conscious of your time and, and I'd be, it'd be good to really catch up again um, as well. But like I said, there's a, there's a fire round that I ask um, that I've wanted to ask people and you're the first one actually. So I'm putting okay. you it. Yeah. Um, but a couple of basic questions and then the last two are a little bit more thoughtful. So the first one is what's the favorite book that you've read recently? Uh, what have I read recently? I'm, I'm in the middle of me and white supremacy, um, kind of doing my, doing my work to become as anti-racist as possible. Um, I think probably the most recent book I think I've read, which I really enjoyed was, um, I forgot the name, but it's about, um, our team of rivals it's called, and it's about, um, Abraham Lincoln's presidency as you can probably tell by <laughs> I mean, American politics is quite interesting to me. And it's just about how he uh, employed his, his rivals for the presidency to be part of his cabinet. Same thing Obama did kind of take some of those people who are against you and brought them in to make sure you weren't just surrounded by yes men and women. So um, does it, yeah, that was a good book. I love that. I love that. I also like the be humble sign behind you as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Strategically very, nice for people very to see. Fitting. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a different one as well. What's your favorite gadget that's helped you, you know, personally that's been under 50 pound. So something that you might have bought on Amazon or something like that, that now you can't sort of live without. Oh, wow. Um, might be something to do with American politics again. <laughs> oh, under 50 pounds. I'm the kind of person that wastes a lot of money on gadgets and things I don't need. So, um, we we'll do it under hundred pounds then, right? We'll give you a bit more. Oh, it's, it's more than a hundred pounds. The only thing I can think of actually is I was supposed to go to Japan for almost a month as lockdown hit. And obviously that didn't happen. And one of the things I was going to buy over there was a Nintendo switch. Uh, couldn't get hold of them at all anywhere as lockdown started, but managed to get hold of one. And I genuinely think the first couple of months through lockdown were easier because I was able to use animal crossing and create this whole world where I could kind of almost just get immersed in this game. And so actually if someone that's, I, mean, I don't, I haven't had a console for a long, long time. I'm not a gamer, but that became a really nice distraction um, and still does now, you know, playing Super Mario in the evenings and stuff is a really nice way to wound down. Um, and so I think there's, there's something in that. And I've always believed there's something in these grounding exercises, like kind of drawing, baking, coloring in the kind of stuff that you can just do without having to think about life. Um, so I think anything at the moment that distracts people from what's going on in the world and just gives their mind something else to focus on is, is really yeah. beneficial. I love that. And again, there's a real, um, I guess, stereotype from people when it comes to gaming, that it's lazy still and all of that, but you know, it's, it's so beneficial for people. And, and like you said, it's a mindful activity, whether you go for a walk or whether you play a game or whether you color or whether you meditate, it's, it's all mindfulness. Right. And it's, it's that distraction in a way. And other people like just kind of escapism and just, you know, putting on Netflix on their phone and just watching the same series is over and over again, but it's, it's that mindful activity. I like that. Um, I've got an Xbox one sitting in front of me and you've made me want to start gaming again. <laughs> um, the other thing as well is, oh, I've got two more questions. The first one is what would you say to someone that might be struggling right now? It's kind of, it's advice that everyone's heard, but talk to somebody um, mm. for a long time. Me as a person growing up felt like 
a problem shared was a problem doubled. I genuinely felt that, you know, I've got, uh, you know, I didn't come out till I was 23 years old and uh, I dealt with a lot on my own for quite a long time. And when that happened, I always felt like I w- it was going to become, it wasn't just my problem. It was going to become my family's problem if I told them. Um, and, you know, there's th- mental health issues are uh, kind of a third more prevalent in the LGBT plus um, community because of the stress of doing that, the stress of kind of having to, for a long time, keep things to yourself, come to terms with it, and then deal with the stress that you think it might have the effect on the rest of your family and that kind of stuff. And so I think if someone had told me way back then just to talk to somebody and to open up to somebody, and I think that advice applies to anyone with a mental health issue, anyone just going through anything, just talk to somebody, um, it does feel better. And you'll be surprised. Some people you'll know in your life have got some resources that you didn't know about and they might be able to step up and help and the one thing that really grates me is when people worry about money i think money is a big part of our lives it's the number one stress for most people's lives we will always worry about it but people can help and you know burying a head in the sand when it comes to stuff like that just causes more problems and i think opening up to somebody even if they can't help just open up to somebody about that those struggles really really does make a difference so i'd kind of advise everybody to just find somebody to talk to and you know i'm happy if that person's me if someone's listening to this and i'm sure you'd be the same there are people you, you know, people you make friends with online and on twitter and stuff like that who you've never met in real life um and i've had some of the most engaging conversations with people i've never met um who've kind of really helped me get through stuff and have really been there for me so um there are millions of people in this world who are willing to step drop everything and help somebody they've never met before so yeah speak to somebody even if it's just samaritans or childline whoever it might be just pick the phone up or speak to somebody yeah amazing and again i think once once we start to eradicate the stigma even more it makes people feel more comfortable to talk and i also have seen a lot of comments recently on i do i do some I do quite a lot on tiktok at the moment now right and, okay. and tiktok's obviously the next generation and I see comments after comments of people sort of saying, you know, I can't talk to someone or I've tried talking to someone and they haven't listened and all of that. And I spoke to someone about it and they gave me some really good advice, which I then shared on, which was if you keep telling the same person and not willing to listen or understand, then stop telling them, you know, you need to find, as you said, another avenue. There's, there's so many other people out there. There's support groups, there's Samaritans, there's, there's lots out there that you can, that you can use. And, that's hard. Right. And I'm sure like you said, from your own personal experience, you want your family to understand and, and that, that makes it more difficult when they don't. But at the same time, as you said, it's still, you need that outlet. You need someone to talk to you drastically. And the, the lesson there for HR, I think as well as, and anyone that's in a business is, you know, we, we're very fond of open door policies, you know, quite happy to say, look, we're inclusive of mental health. We want you to talk to us. People need to understand that admitted to yourself, there's a problem and then taking the step to speak to somebody else. There can be a big, there's a big chasm between that. So it takes an awful lot for somebody to go and approach their employer to say, look, I'm struggling. Even if you've got a really inclusive environment where you've made it safe for people to talk about it, it's still really difficult. Um, And so I kind of think this open door policy needs to kind of just disappear. And I think managers and HR teams and CEOs need to be more proactive with if I make more opportunities to sit with my people as individuals and have one-on-one conversations about them and their lives as much as they're happy to, rather than work, I'm giving them more opportunities to build a bond with me, but also then to open up to me. Um, And I just think that should be, you know, when we talk about empathy being this skill that we want all managers to have in the future, that's really it. That's kind of Mm. employing people that 
actually care about other people as managers rather than those who've got technical ability is where most companies should be focused at the moment. Yeah, I like that. And typically that's, you, you sometimes get promoted because you're good at your job rather than being good with people, right? So exactly. um, this one might get you, it might get you thinking a little bit, but um, the last question is, if you could give one piece of advice to the younger you, what would it be? Oh God. Um, I think somebody asked me this at a dinner party once. I think, <laughs> like yeah, I, go- I Googled like good dinner party questions. <laughs> <laughs> It was right after the question about who would you have a dinner party with people. Um, so I think I, what I worried an awful lot when I grew when I grew up. Um, I remember once I, I used to worry so much, and I'd like, you know, I was dealing with a lot of stuff when I was kind of in my late teens anyway, and um, spent a lot of time, you know, in, in my bedroom crying because I was I was dealing with some stuff and. My parents never thought it was the thing that I was actually worried about. Like, as soon as I did come out, my dad was like, is that why you've been crying in your room on your own for like four or five years? Um, and so I think it got to the point where if I could go back now and speak to myself, I'd kind of just tell myself not to worry so much. I think, you know, when you worry about something happening, you worry on the run up to it happening. If it doesn't happen, it was wasted time. If it does happen and you worry twice, it's kind of... Mm. Um, so I just think, you know, and it's, and it's difficult, right? I try to do it now. I try to kind of not worry about what's going on in society. I try not to, you know, I try not to take on the burden of Black Lives Matter and coronavirus and other people I know losing their job and worrying about money and stuff like that. So I think you just, people need to be a, a lot easier on themselves and just have a bit of confidence that, you know, life always finds a way. Things will always get better. And it might really not seem like it at the time when you're really stuck in a difficult time period. But just have the confidence and convince yourself that life moves on, life gets better. Don't worry about stuff. Just kind of try and enjoy the smallest things in your life and express gratitude for the smallest things. And I think uh, I could have done with that advice, I think, when I was probably a bit younger. Amazing advice. I really appreciate you taking the time out today. And I've, I've learned loads and I'm sure other people will as well. So um, finally, where can people find out a little bit more about you or, or tell us about the book as well? Yeah, so you can still get the book on um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble in kind of 12 different countries. Um, I've also got my own podcast, A Word of Good, and that's where we talk about different elements of well-being in the workplace. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, at World of Good Book, and people can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Gethin Naden. Um, and happy to have these kind of chats and discussions with people. I think it does help move the, uh, move the agenda forward, so happy to connect with anyone who wants to have a chat. Amazing. Thank you for your time once again. Thank you very much for having me.